clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming, and President of the Rockefeller Foundation, Dr. Raj Shah. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good morning, everybody. Clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller, and welcome to, as Tom said, the 31st in the client series that we've been running since uh, April of 2020. It's my great pleasure to have Raj Shah with me this morning. I'm gonna introduce Raj in a second, but I wanted to uh, spend a moment on the Rockefeller Foundation, the organization that Raj is currently the president of. The Rockefeller Foundation is a global institution with a mission to promote the well-being of humanity around the world. The foundation applies data, science, and innovation to improve health for women and children, create nutritious and sustainable food systems, end energy poverty for more than a billion people worldwide, and enable meaningful economic mobility in the United States and around the world. And I did that, and I stressed that, and we're gonna spend a lot of time on this with the leader today, because uh, what an incredible mandate and an example of what makes us all proud to be associated and affiliated with the Rockefeller family. Now, Raj has had a huge impact in his tenure as the leader of this storied institution. And we're gonna spend a lot of time on that in a second, but he's also had an outstanding career across many different noteworthy posts prior to, Rockefeller, prior to leading the Rockefeller Foundation. He served at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where he created the International Financing Facility for Immunization, which helped reshape the global vaccine industry and save millions of lives. He founded Latitude Capital, a private equity firm focused on power and infrastructure projects in Asia and Africa. Don't hear that all the time around private equity. He served as the Distinguished Fellow in Residence at Georgetown University in 2009, he was appointed U.S. Agency for International Development Administrator, USAID, by President Obama and unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Raj shaped the $20 billion agency's operations in more than 70 countries around the world by elevating the role of innovation, creating high-impact public-private partnerships, which is a theme that runs throughout his career that we're going to talk about, and focusing U.S. investments to deliver stronger results. Prior to that, Raj served as Chief Scientist and Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics in the United States Department of Agriculture, where he created the National Institute for Food and Agriculture. You can see why I wanted to spend some time on his background. Raj is a graduate of the University of Michigan, the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and the Wharton School of Business. He's received several honorary degrees, the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, and the U.S. Global Leadership Award. So it is truly my privilege to have Raj here with us today. Raj, welcome, and thanks for joining our program. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be with you and your outstanding team. Raj, uh, given what I just went through, uh, which might have been longer than you wanted, but I wanted people to understand the organizations that you've led and the impact that you've had uh, across so many areas, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, your background and, and, and how, in some ways, um, you know, you went into to, to a career uh, you're leveraging public-private, but you've done a lot of work for not-for-profits, for government, in areas where you've had huge impact. 
uh, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, that background and what kind of led you into that. And you've stayed with it uh, and built, uh, you know, a career with um, one stop after another uh, in in the in the category of uh, helping solve uh, major problems that exist in the world through not-for-profit government and then by leveraging private sector. Well, you know, first, Greg, uh, thank you for having me here. I, I am thrilled to be with uh, Rockefeller Capital Management because you're part of the family and because we have uh, you have such a strong values uh, focused mission and approach to the work you do. Uh, I also wish you had told me ahead of time you were going to make such a generous introduction because I would have had my mom log on. <laughs> <laughs> she still gets out of that, uh, but that, that's that's very kind of you. Uh, look, I, I I don't know. I I feel like I'm very fortunate to have had some really unique opportunities. I grew up in suburban Detroit. My parents are immigrants from India. My uh, they both came kind of in this wave of immigration in the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, where a lot of families from, from India came on educational scholarships, my dad uh, studying to be an engineer, but they came with a commitment to education, but not much else, not a lot of resources. And I had a great childhood in suburban Detroit. My dad worked at Ford Motor Company for years. I assumed, uh, you know, since I was good at math and, and decent at school that I'd be an engineer at Ford someday. <laughs> it really wasn't until kind of uh, a little bit as I was getting older that I realized you could do more than that if you wanted to. And uh, and and I remember one experience in particular when I was very young, my folks uh, took me to India and showed me the, you know, the communities where they were either from or my mother, who grew up with a little more privilege in Mumbai, um, her her family took me out to see some of the slums there because they said, you guys coming from America, your kids, you're 10 or 11, you're visiting uh, this country and you're seeing staying in all these nice hotels. You should also get a chance to see how most people here live, especially kids. And I just I can even today kind of remember the sights and the sounds and the smells of getting out of my uncle's. Uh, kind of, you know, uh, chauffeur-driven car in a slum in Mumbai. Then it was called Bombay. And just seeing all these kids playing in open sewage and uh, these little huts where they lived in and uh, just more people than I'd ever seen in one moment, in one place, a uh, tremendous amount of crowding, uh, kind of the ragged clothes, but also like smiles on their faces and playing games and kicking a soccer ball around and, and doing a lot of the things that kids do. And from that moment on, I just sort of had in my head that, gosh, if you could, uh, why do some countries succeed at eliminating that living condition and giving people upward mobility and others seem mired in very large scale kind of poverty and suffering. And, and I've had other experiences since then uh, when I've got to touch that problem, uh, but that just became a big intellectual pursuit. So even as I went to medical school and went to business school and struggled with what to do with my career, that was always in the back of my mind. And frankly, I left medicine uh, to work on Al Gore's presidential campaign, moved from Philadelphia to Nashville, uh, subsisted at Waffle Houses in Tennessee for, for most of the year. And uh, when we didn't quite win that election, as you and your clients will remember, <laughs> it was a close one to say the least. Uh, I you know, was looking for a job. Bill Gates was uh, starting his foundation and needed uh, uh, someone who had some training in economics and health and time on their hands. And I started working with that foundation. Uh, and I had the 
the gumption to tell Bill when I first met him that I, I didn't really have an interest in philanthropy. I wanted to be an academic uh, physician <laughs> with my career, but I would do it for a short amount of time since it was so interesting. And, and you know, I stayed there for eight or nine years and learned a lot of what I feel like I get to practice now uh, from watching the way that team came together in that moment and tried to solve some big, big problems in the world. And it was exhilarating. And some of those problems, Roger, I, I watched something on Netflix recently on Gates. Uh, it was called A Brilliant Mind or something like that. But some of some of the topics that they've tackled, uh, I'm sure you were involved in and had an impact in up front because he's focused on plumbing and dealing with sewage and and and, and fresh water in places like India. It was spotlighted in that in that uh, Netflix uh, documentary. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, we start, you know, I, I, I had uh, two or three big projects when I was there. The first one was establishing a global immunization platform to really make sure every child on the planet was fully immunized, which I'd love to talk about. But on the water and sanitation and hygiene, there was a moment where Bill and Melinda said, hey, you know, would you guys, would you and your team, Raj, sort of look at some new things we could do with our resources because we might have more resources. And I thought, oh, that means they're going to put a little more of their personal wealth into the foundation. It was like 2004, 2005. And we started exploring other things we could do and, and discovered that, you know, the combination of technology, philanthropy, innovation, and advocacy uh, could actually make a difference at eliminating uh, the fact that a billion people live without access to clean drinking water and safe sanitation, and that that's dramatically debilitating for their livelihoods and their, their living condition. And we started tackling that. I remember one trip, uh, I was such an advocate for trying to get the foundation to work in that space that we were in a slum uh, outside of Nairobi with Melinda and, and some of her uh, family. And, and, and we were like uh, taking water that was basically sewage water and showing how different purification technologies could on the spot purify and make that safe for drinking. And so I was demoing it. There was like maybe 30, 40 people in this little tent. And uh, and I was going to drink the purified sewage water <laughs> for, just to show. I mean, the science proved it was totally safe. And Melinda reached over and was like, we'll have a water and sanitation program. Please don't drink that glass of water. <laughs> so, but yes, that shows you the value you were providing. She wasn't going to take a risk. Persistent. Yeah. Um, she wasn't going to risk uh, losing one of her most talented people uh, or even having you get ill. You, you know, Raj, let's let's stay with that immunization program, though, because that was something that you, I know you're you're justifiably proud of at this point. And, and as is the Gates Foundation and, and the, the work that was done there uh, truly was revolutionary. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you all did there and what it led to? Sure. Well, you know, look, it was it was 2000 and uh, Bill and Melinda were asking a simple question, which was, how would you take this massive amount of resource and save the most lives around the world? And so we did all of this economic analysis with partners like Jeffrey Sachs and economists around the world. And the basic conclusion was uh, you could save a year of life most efficiently on the planet by investing in global immunization. And I think our initial estimates, which were way off, by the way, and I remember because I did them, <laughs> was that you could save a year of life for $14. It turned out to be, you know, uh, like a hundred, or yeah, one year of life for $14. It turned out to be over 120 or $130, but still by still, far the yeah. most effective way to save a year of life financially. So after we did all that modeling, 
uh, we basically invited people who knew how to run global immunization programs, the big institutions, and said, what would it take to immunize every child on the planet? We had seen that you know, over over time, actually, between the 1970s and and uh, and the 1990s, there had been a decline in global vaccination rates for children across the world. There are about 120 million kids born every year uh, on the planet, and immunization had gone from 70 percent down to 40 percent. The nature of the industry, what they were manufacturing, had changed dramatically. Availability of vaccines uh, was limited for developing countries, and so we said, what would it take to solve that problem? And to build incredible credit you know it was never good enough to solve that problem in one place India or Senegal never good enough to solve that problem for one disease rotavirus or malaria it really was how do you make sure every child on the planet is fully immunized with every vaccine known to man and how much would that cost and what can we do so we built an alliance and we got private companies public governments, creative uh, innovators all together created something called the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. Uh, we recruited Nelson Mandela to be the first chair of the Vaccine Fund Board. And as a, as a young professional, I got to meet him in South Africa and it blew me away. And, uh, and, and you know, if you look back 20 years later, uh, those immunization rates have flipped. It went from 40 to 50 percent back up to 70 plus percent on its way to 80, 90 for basic childhood vaccinations. We changed the structure of that industry. We've raised tens of billions of dollars and saved uh, millions and millions of lives. I think the current estimate is more than 8 million lives saved as a result of that. And uh, I will say along the way, one of the really innovative things we had to do is restructure the way the world plans for invests in and uh, purchases and finances the procurement of vaccines, which sounds extremely technical. But we had brought together the heads of capital markets divisions from the major Wall Street banks, and, and I kind of ran a study group with them for about a year. And they ended up developing a project called the International uh, Immunization Facility for Vaccination, the IFF. And Gordon Brown at the time was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Nicolas Sarkozy was the Minister of uh, Finance in, in France, and the three of us, Gates uh, and, and the UK and France, kind of led that effort. And it was really the first big social impact bond uh, the world had ever seen. It raised five, six billion dollars initially, and it restructured the way we finance uh, the procurement of vaccines, and it reshaped the nature of global vaccination. So I'm, I am very proud of that. And it is a good example also of how creative capital markets approaches applied to social problems can actually do some extraordinary things on behalf of humanity. That, that's actually a theme I'd like to stay with for a second because um, that's a theme. And, and I think this is partly uh, your training and the way that you entered this career. You, you know, you did, you were trained as an economist and, and, and you did bring, uh, you know, a lot of that to, to the table here. Uh, and and uh, in, in almost every stop along the way, including at USAID everywhere though, and Rockefeller Foundation as well, which is a very large foundation, but you're looking to do multiples through the money that you have available to you through different public-private partnerships. Can you talk about uh, talk about that? Really, you know, again, I think it is, and the Gates uh, work shows it, it it's, it's a common theme at every stop where you are the leader along the way. And, and and, and has created the ability to, to move the needle, uh, you know, and levels. You wouldn't have gotten 8 million children, 8 million lives saved if you if you hadn't done that. And, and you've had this theme. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you. That Talk a little bit about that theme and how you've built it out everywhere. 
Well, you know, it's really about asking yourself the question, what does it take to actually solve a problem versus do some good? And uh, John D. Rockefeller, when he created this foundation that I now have the chance to be at, uh, actually made this distinction in these letters that went back and forth uh, between him and his philanthropic advisor, a gentleman named Frederick Gates, in like 1907, 1908. And he was saying, I want to do things. You know, he'd always been philanthropic. He'd always tithed uh, from a young age. But he said, I want to do things that would really transform the nature of humanity, not just do good charitable work. And that led to a mindset that, frankly, Bill and Melinda studied carefully and, and very much adopted. Uh, and in my view, exemplified, uh, that was like philanthropy, good, like really creative philanthropy should be about bringing people together and solving major problems. And that almost always requires uh, levels of investment that far out exceed what's in the philanthropic space. So, you know, Rockefeller in its first 40 years really created the field of modern medicine and public health, uh, but they did it by investing in science-based medicine, by creating new standards for medical education in the United States, by mobilizing resources for those institutions, but also putting in place uh, financing of healthcare, financing of science-based healthcare as a concept that then took off around the world. You know, 80 years later, they invested in a green revolution, which again was investing in the science that would allow agricultural yields to go up dramatically, uh, and then getting private and public financing to accelerate the availability of that science to small-scale farmers in, in Asia and Latin America, where people were on 800 million people on the brink of starvation, I mean, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and they moved those folks off that brink of starvation, and, and it yielded uh, the second Nobel Peace Prize awarded to a foundation uh, you know, leader. And so, so those are, are powerful examples. I think we tried to mimic that with global immunization and vaccinations. Uh, we're now trying to mimic that and bringing energy and renewable and, uh, and clean energy to the world's poor. Uh, but once you shift the mindset to say, I'm not here to really do good charitable work, I'm here to kind of look at a problem, study it, bring together the world's smartest people and figure out how to solve that problem over time. Even if the solution is a hundred times more expensive than the resources I have available, you just spend time figuring out how do you create incentives and partnerships to, to mobilize the resources necessary. And it has worked before and it can continue to work, I believe, in the future. Well, you've had a huge impact on pushing it forward everywhere you've been, but it is quite remarkable this man, John D. Rockefeller, there was nothing that he tried to do in a small way and to turn from what he was able to accomplish uh, uh, in the business world and to want to transform society with charitable dollars as opposed to, as you said, doing just, you know, and not, not that it's just doing good, but, uh, you know, transformation is a concept that not a lot of people take on. Uh, and, and Gates would be, Bill Gates and Melinda would be, you know, a version of that in today's society saying, hey, we studied this and we're going to do it moving forward. It's really an incredible story. Yeah, it's an incredible story. It also takes some real uh, stick with itness, you know, with Rockefeller's biggest success stories. By the way, a lot of things the foundation did over 110 years did not work. Uh, but the ones that did it took 20, 30, 40 years. The vaccination story I shared with you is a 20 year journey that is still ongoing. Uh, and and that's just what it takes. And I think that's probably a concept many of your clients appreciate. I mean, I imagine you have very successful entrepreneurs and business leaders who have kind of focused on a problem and built out a business or an enterprise uh, over decades. And that, that that success 
it's almost the compounding effect of focus and, and investment and yield that drives success in business, also drives success in philanthropic work and, and public sector initiatives. It's just too often people, you know, shift from hot topic to hot topic or or don't have the ability to stick with something tough for 20 or 30 years in the philanthropic space. And I give uh, our predecessors in these roles a lot of credit for that. That's great. Uh, you're 100% right. I mean, uh, one of the reasons we, we have a strategic advisory business at Rockefeller Capital Management is because so many families in the U.S. make money through building a business. And, and that typically, as you said, is a decades-long approach. And we want to be there to be able to give them advice as they start thinking about investing or maybe monetizing or, or you know, going from private to public. Uh, so the, the, the notion of long-term is embedded in our clients, both in building businesses and in investments. But as you said, not, uh, you know, harder to do and harder to find, at least historically in the not-for-profit world. Raj, can, can we um, uh, segue to one of the things that you're right front and center on, on in terms of leadership at the Rockefeller Foundation today, and that's responding to the COVID pandemic. Uh, both um, the financial commitments that the Rockefeller Foundation has made, um, but again, more broadly and not surprisingly, the programs that you've been pushing, the leadership. You know, I remember when you when you um, announced, uh, you know, a billion dollars. It's it's a lot of money, but you announced it in the way that you always do, which was trying to move the needle, use the brand of the Rockefeller Foundation, and pull other people in. Can you talk about your the whole? Uh, response to COVID and how that fits into the principles of Rockefeller as well. You know, it's uh, it's in an area that that the foundation has been focused on for a long time. Sure. Well, thank you for mentioning uh, the commitment we've made because I'm so proud of our team and our board for taking uh, what I consider unique risks in this moment uh, to meet this moment. You know, I had the chance when I worked uh, with President Obama to run the West African Ebola response. And you might remember in 2014, uh, a sense of dread and fear in parts of uh, the American populace around the risk of Ebola hitting home. And we made the judgment that we would deploy uh, military public health and, and scientific expertise to West Africa to beat back Ebola in that setting uh, and save lives. And I learned one big lesson from that, and that is, that in order to win a fight against a global pandemic, you have to be data driven. You have to have data, you have to invest in real time data, you have to respond to data and the facts as they are, and you have to do it with transparency and speed. So when this crisis emerged, I happened to be with uh, uh, Dr. Tedros, who runs the WHO. We were in January having coffee and just around the time when, when WHO was dealing with whether to label this a pandemic of global concern. And it became apparent that this was going to be a huge problem. It also became apparent that, you know, both in Asia, where this thing uh, ostensibly started, there was not a lot of data transparency, if you remember back then, uh, and in the U.S., we were actively uh, not testing for or looking for uh, positive cases. When I ran the Ebola response, we sent, uh, we actually sent, we put nine DOD bioterror labs up throughout uh, West Africa and we had helicopter transport of blood samples and we got the diagnostic rate uh, it, way up and the time to a positive way down from almost two days to under four hours. And that's when we started to beat back Ebola. And we saw that we were just making no such effort in the United States to do that on, on COVID. So Rockefeller, uh, thanks to great expertise on our teams, built out a testing strategy and platform for the United States, brought, brought together industry leaders, including Abbott and Quidel and others, 
uh, and created a, a public-private consortia of state governors, uh, led by, at the time, Larry Hogan, who was the head of the National Governors Association, but a bipartisan group. And we said, look, if the federal government's not going to do this, let's step in and, and do our best to solve this problem. And we created a testing infrastructure for America that actually yielded a tremendous acceleration of diagnostic testing and the ability to sort of see COVID as it was happening through the spring and summer of, of last year. That, that constituted our effort. And as we were doing that, we just realized that, you know, this moment matters so much for the things this institution was built to care about. We're built to care about human equity. We're built to care about whether vulnerable and poor families have a chance to experience upward mobility. And we're built to bring scientific advances to the farthest corners of the globe. And we saw that this COVID pandemic was exacerbating huge inequities in the United States. You know, we were running testing programs in, in Los Angeles, Navajo Nation, 50 other places in America. People didn't want to get tested because if they were positive, they'd lose their income, they'd lose their job, and they had no place to quarantine, and they had no way to get food to their families. I mean, my personal family experience with COVID has been so different than that, right? That it just became apparent if we really care about equity in this moment, we had to step up. And we saw that on a global basis, uh, this was going to cause the first great divergence in 80 years where low-income countries grow systemically slower than wealthier countries and poverty, which had been narrowing, uh, starts to expand again for the foreseeable future. So, so we went to our board and said we'd like to do a social impact bond and raise a billion dollars. Uh, we did that. We made this commitment, uh, raised some funds, and, and it's enabled us to really play, I think, a unique leadership role on both fighting the pandemic at home and abroad and laying the groundwork for a global green recovery that includes everyone. So uh, it's, it's an exciting time to be at an institution built for this moment. We had to do some things, as you and your clients do all the time, uh, when you have both a crisis or an opportunity, you kind of look at your balance sheet and figure out how you're going to resource yourself to uh, to accelerate your impact, and, and that's what we're doing. Rod, you've been in the middle of so much because of uh, what you just described, that the, this organization, this is a moment in time where it can really have an impact uh, across so many things that are central to the, you know, the very beginning of Rockefeller Foundation. Are there, uh, do you take positives away from everything that you've seen in the last 18 months? Are, are we better prepared? You mentioned there was no testing in the United States in January of 2020, and uh, it, it, you know, it came in such a rush. Remember that in, in March of 2020, when, you know, uh, virtually we went from life as normal and, and some things in the news at the end of February to the, the country shut down a week or two later. Uh, are we better prepared next time? Are you because this type of thing Rockefeller Foundation also invests in? You know how next time can be better here and in around the world. You know the notion of equity for people in countries other than the United States. Yeah, I'd say certainly in the United States we we are better prepared for the next one. Uh, you know it's been unfortunate actually that that this has become so political in the United States. Uh, you know the reality is. Uh, basic public health measures are most successful when they're completely divorced from politics and they're just rules folks follow uh, and then you beat back a disease and you move on. And that sort of collective action has been difficult in our current politics. So with that as a, as a standing challenge, we're absolutely much better off next time. I mean, I think when the stories finally told of what happened, there were some shocking uh, breaches of, of standards and protocols and, uh, you know, 
pandemic response 101 that happened in the February, March, April timeframe you mentioned, uh, what they did in South Korea to actually build public-private consortias to develop diagnostics, develop treatment protocols, work with uh, hospitals to make sure they had the supplies they need and work with communications experts to get the word out, uh, arguably in a less diverse society, but that really was the model response in that window. And the next time around, we're gonna be much better off at, at setting it up. One of the things Rockefeller's doing for the world is building a pandemic prevention institute. And much like Zillow took the MLIS data and made it available to everybody uh, and gave you kind of purpose-built tools to see in real time what a home is worth or whether a home's going up or down in terms of price and value. Uh, we can now do that with laboratory data from Sentinel Labs around the 200 epidemics that happen every year, some of which threaten to be breakthrough pandemics. And frankly, I saw this in the Ebola crisis and saw it in Zika and see it again in COVID-19. Until the world has that kind of a data system run by scientists, enabled by technologists, uh, made accessible to everybody without a lot of political and government interference, we're always gonna be behind the eight ball in tackling pandemics. And by the way, the next pandemic, I think will be yet another alphabet, <laughs> you know, another part of the Greek alphabet, as opposed to some entirely novel pandemic. Delta is likely not to be the last variant and, and I can discuss why, but we need that kind of a real-time global data visualization system up and running right away. And we have worked with the G7 to uh, resource that and we've put together a team to build it out and together with the World Health Organization and governments around the world. And most importantly, scientific uh, leaders, we are gonna build that out over the course of the next 18 months so the world can see in real-time future pandemics. That's fantastic, uh, and it's uh, and it, it's something that we can all be pleased that uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and the people and governments you pull in and that are making happen. I did want to shift gears because uh, uh, there's other things that uh, Rockefeller Foundation's at the center of, and there are, there are other things in your past that I want to get to. But uh, one of the things that that we talked about that uh, uh, I, I think uh, all, all would want to hear is the role of the Rockefeller Foundation in evacuating uh, people, including women at risk from Afghanistan, which is another you know, place that uh, current uh, difficult, painful topic for everybody that you've tried to step into a breach on. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Rockefeller Foundation's efforts there? Sure, well, you know, because the Rockefeller Foundation has been around for more than 100 years and has been fighting for these values of equity, of justice, of opportunity for all throughout that period, we have built trusted networks uh, all across the globe. And, you know, when I was in uh, government, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and I carried the mission forward to help in particular educate girls and women in Afghanistan. We really felt that the almost 40% of school kids who were, who were girls uh, in Afghanistan represented the country's best hope for the future because they changed mindsets, they changed what was possible in their communities. They moved their families upward as they grew and they changed the very nature of how people imagined what gender equity could be like and what that means for society. So when uh, when the crisis transpired and is still ongoing, of course, in July and, and August of, of this past summer, uh, you know, we, we saw a lot of our partners, a lot of women leaders we had invested in and supported all of a sudden 
being threatened by uh, by the Taliban and not having the support they might normally have from a United States that was more actively evacuating its own personnel. And we stepped in and, and managed uh, the evacuation for, for a few hundred uh, people. And it, you know, we, not something we do every day. We do uh, rise to the occasion from time to time on what we call special uh, projects. This is definitely one of them. Uh, but our, we did a charter flight that moved uh, about 51 people. Then we did a second flight that moved another 172. Then we did a, a series of coordinating actions with the International Rescue Committee that helped another uh, four or 500 people coordinate their exit. And we negotiated with third country governments from Uganda to Europe to help both take take them and help the United States with the processing part of it all. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, while most of our work fo focuses on what can we achieve in 10, 20, 30 years, I'll tell you, it was extraordinarily so rewarding to me that I shared with my kids the photos of, of women and their families that were safely evacuated through, through a real crisis. And I give a huge shout out to my own team that, you know, stayed on these coordination calls until three, four in the morning to make sure that if buses were at the Abbey Gate, they were moving around and maintaining safety and staying in touch with the US military and the US government, the State Department. So just really proud of my crew for stepping up in that moment. And I will say, I'll take the opportunity to brag for a moment because it is probably the best thing about getting to run the Rockefeller Foundation is getting to work with people who have that mission orientation. And you know, my folks will, uh, when given that opportunity, they'll drop their August vacations and work around the clock to, to literally save the lives of, of women and girls who are under immediate threat and do it with some real risks to themselves and ourselves as an institution. So I'm just proud of them. Well, you should be. I mean, that's fantastic uh, effort and, and frankly um, would be viewed as such by, uh, you know, 330 million Americans. So uh, bravo to you, your team and the Rockefeller Foundation on that. You know, Raj, it does lead uh, to a question that Lisa Manganiello just sent in, which I was going to get to, uh, but thank you, Lisa, and you put it uh, uh, well. Uh, you know, just listening to you, uh, you're, you're trying to solve problems. And uh, as Lisa said, um, how do you and your team stay above the political nature of the public debate and stay focused and true to your mission of advancing public health and overcoming a fair bit of misinformation in the public square? I mean, uh, that's got to be, given the profile of Rockefeller Foundation, frankly, the profile of yourself, uh, you know, after the career that you've had um, and, and the, the environment that we're in where everything is, is, uh, is ratcheted up in terms of the, uh, the perspectives that, uh, and the voices. How do you uh, do what Lisa uh, is asking and, and try to stay above and out of the, the political side? Well, I appreciate the question, Lisa, and I'd say it, we don't, I don't know that we try to stay out of the political side. I think we try to be a part of it, uh, but with a mindset that's built on listening and engagement. And I, I learned the hard way when I was in government, you know, I was this, uh, this, this young quantitative guy from the Gates Foundation running USAID and, and I lived through the first uh, budget sequestration in 2010 with, with Paul Ryan, the Paul Ryan budget, that which, which would have cut a lot of our global health programs. And I went, stood in front of Congress and I said, I, after you know pouring through spreadsheets to make sure these numbers were accurate, I said, the Republican budget is gonna kill 70 million kids around the world. And uh, I got back to my office 
And I heard from, uh, at the time, Speaker Boehner's office, that they were not happy with that statement. And and I went and met with uh, one of his key guys and understood that, you know, while I might have been accurate in the math of what the impact of the budget cut was, there are plenty of Republicans in Congress who oppose President Obama's budget, but care deeply about the mission of serving others. And I spent probably two years uh, meeting with, getting to know, traveling with, conservative, often faith-based Republican members of the House and Senate and learned that they have just as deep a heart for serving those who are vulnerable around the world uh, as the most progressive members of Congress that I had already known. And I'm so grateful for that experience because it built lasting friendships that would shock (laughs) everybody. uh, And it made a huge difference for what we were able to accomplish. But it taught me that you, before you speak, you really got to listen and you got to understand where someone's coming from, what their life experience has been, why they have the perspective they have. So, you know, even through this crisis, you know, we worked with, uh, I mean, we were one of the few institutions that were able to work with Republican and uh, Democratic members of Congress. Uh, Certainly at the governor level, we had very strong relationships across the aisle. And we were able to just say, okay, you know, Governor Kemp and I worked together to figure out how to get uh, black pastors in Atlanta to carry forward the message of mask wearing, testing and vaccination. I mean, there there are uh, unique collaborations you can build if you're willing to kind of really understand where people are coming from, even if some of the things that they say on the cable news are uh, shocking to you. And and that I think I'd love to see a little bit more of that in our public life. And we just try to model it as best we can. You know, that leads me to another uh, thing that I wanted to ask you about that, uh, of, of which I'm sure you're proud. During your time at, uh, as the administrator at USAID, uh, you helped inspire bipartisan support of two significant acts, Global Food Security Act and the Electrify Africa Act. Can you talk about the impact that's come out of, of those uh, of those laws and the progress that's been made on both fronts as a result of, uh, of, of them being passed and pursued? Well, sure. You know, the Global Food Security Act was the was the uh, the largest uh, global development investment America had made since uh, President George W. Bush created a program called the President's Emergency Plan uh, to End AIDS for AIDS relief, PEPFAR. And to me, it's just a symbol of the fact that if you listen and build collaborations and build bridges across the aisle, uh, you can in fact get a lot done uh, because the idea that America should be the world's humanitarian leader, that America's values should be expressed not just through our military might, but also through our ability to bring some semblance of hope and justice to difficult communities. And the idea that the idea of America is a unique concept relative to the founding ideals of of other nations around the world. Those are things that bring us together as Americans, whether we are conservative or uh, or more progressive. And so I feel fortunate. I explained the experience that kind of taught me I needed to listen. Uh, but then I went on some trips and, you know, Jim Inhofe and I traveled through Ethiopia. We got stuck one day in the in in a muddy road in rural Ethiopia. And uh, for those of you that don't know, Senator Inhofe is a fairly conservative member of, of the Senate from uh, Oklahoma. And we just became good friends on, on that trip and, and beyond. And 
of course, when we got stuck in the mud, he he leaned over and he's like, okay, everybody under 70 has to get out and push, uh, <laughs> kind of looking at me. Uh, but it, look, the reality is I think those personal relationships helped build a bipartisan consensus that America has a responsibility to fight hunger around the world, that America has an opportunity to bring uh, human and economic progress to countries that otherwise will turn to China in particular for a different kind of developmental model that is more tied to nat natural resource extraction and geopolitical uh, influence. And so I think it's a big part of how America exercises power around the world and it should be and, and thankfully has been uh, a bipartisan mission. I'll say one last thing about that is, and I and credit to Lindsey Graham for this because he carried the, the, the water on this uh, during the Trump years, but, but during the Trump years, the administration often sought to eliminate that part of America's mission around the world. And it was the Republican Senate and the Repu and Republicans in the House that held it together uh, and maintained that position for us. So, you know, just listening, learning, getting to know folks and understanding where they come from. And frankly, having uh, a little bit of an awe for this country that, um, you know, helps helps bring us together sometimes. You know, Raj, it's one of the things that I, I worry about if we stay with the theme for a second, and, and you're out there more than most people, uh, uh, public or, or private sector, in terms of traveling and the countries you've been to and the, and the problems you focused on. And, and I believe, as you do, passionately in the leadership that America can and should provide in these ways. And, and we're at a crossroads in, in many ways with another country that has the resources and the ability to step in with their model as, as we pull back, how is that playing out? Uh, and I know you've traveled less because of the pandemic, but in, in a lot of the countries around the world, uh, do, do we retain uh, the, the reaction that has existed to America for uh, decades and, and even centuries in these countries where they wanna see us there and they wanna see us promoting solutions to, uh, to human problems? Uh, and is, uh, is, is the US brand the Rockefeller brand is alive and well. I know that personally, and you do too. Is the U.S. brand as alive and well around the world as it uh, as it was in the past? And uh, we're going to be able to um, to continue to project this version of soft power around the world. Well, I'll say I'll agree with your statement about the Rockefeller brand. Right, the Rockefeller brand is sort of an uh, an amazing incarnation of, of of the United States brand in many, many, many parts of the world. Uh, to the point where you know, if if you told a group of Afghan women and girls to coordinate a evacuation. Uh, you know, if you say you're doing it on behalf of the Rockefeller Foundation, they're just immediately going to trust you and support it, right? And so, uh, so I think that the Rockefeller brand is certainly very much a, a powerful force for bringing people together and for unlocking that sense of shared human aspiration. I think the American brand is frankly exceedingly strong and poised to be stronger. The reality is. Uh, yeah, we've had some bumps, you know, we always have some bumps. And right now, I think it's probably a, a little bit of a bumpy period where countries are questioning whether our military commitments to them are uh, as robust as they used to be. And the Trump years were tough because we backed out of a lot of necessary global alliances and arrangements, uh, causing all of that to be questioned. But it is still the case uh, 
If we want to reshape the global energy economy, if we want to make sure the world vaccinates everybody with COVID-19 vaccines, if we want to make sure that new variants are detected early and made visible to everyone, there is still only one nation on the planet that can lead those efforts, and it's the United States of America. And I've seen it over and over and over again, whether we were fighting Ebola in Africa, dealing with a you know, terrorist threat and famine in the Horn of Africa, fighting the war in Afghanistan while trying to give women and girls the chance to aspire to a better future, or looking to bring people together around reasonable climate arrangements. At the end of the, ta at the, end of the day, there is simply no substitute, even today, for American leadership. And so the question is just, will we step up and lead? And will our civil society organizations, private foundations, companies that represent you know, what America offers to the world, come together to be part of that soft power leadership. And frankly, it has to, because, you know, some of the biggest challenges the world face today, will we have a divergent or convergent recovery across the community of nations? Will we actually fight climate change and keep the, the warming to one and a half degrees centigrade or, or two degrees centigrade? Will we in fact deal with fragile states in a manner that gives people a, a modicum of hope and opportunity so they don't harbor terrorists and become a, a global threat? Uh, and, and how will we deal with the rise of, of China and Chinese influence? All of those questions can only be answered you know, with American leadership. So we don't have a choice. Uh, it, you know, you don't have a choice. It's not just private foundations or, or even the U.S. government. It's all of us together have to carry that mindset. I'll just conclude on that point, Greg, by saying when John D. Rockefeller created this institution, he understood that. I mean, he actually wanted to hand the Rockefeller Foundation over to Congress and have the vice president of the United States be uh, the chair of the foundation because he felt it was an instrument of American soft power that could express our best values across the world. And that was very much in our national interest. And he had that thought, you know, in 1914. And that I think a, that's still true today. Fantastic. I didn't know he did. It's fantastic. He was ahead of his time because uh, the, the notion of the soft power is just so key to who we are. To uh, And uh, it's great to hear you say everything you did. By the way, Raj, when you were listening and you were ticking off the reasons why it had to happen. I'm thinking we're pulling you out of the not-for-profit sector and uh, you're gonna be in the political sector before you know it, because <laughs> we, we, we could use that uh, that kind of discourse there as well. Now, I've got some questions that have come in uh, through teams that I wanna make sure I send along to you because you'll recognize some of them as well. From Justin Rockefeller, he says, thanks for all you do, Raj. Should foundations allocate some percentage of their funding toward existential threats to humanity? And he goes on to say, uh, if you believe that the Gates Foundation's, uh, you know, tenet that every life has equal value should extend to a distant to distant future generations, how does the Rockefeller Foundation weigh spending to help those alive today versus spending to help voiceless future generations? Thanks. Well, Justin, thank you, and thanks for all that that you do to be part of this mission. Um, and I hope everyone's aware of of your efforts. But I, yes, absolutely. In fact. Uh, we exist for the purpose of, you know, carrying forward the mission for future generations. And, and that's why, you know, for example, we are making this billion dollar commitment to, to fight COVID now and also to invest in a global green recovery. It's why we actually worked with the International Monetary Fund over the course of the last year, not quite year, 10 months, to put in place this unique action around something called special drawing rights that'll provide 
probably about another hundred billion dollars of liquidity to developing countries to both fight COVID and invest in a recovery. It's why we've been able to, uh, and we're going to launch at the uh, COP26, this big climate meeting in Glasgow later this year, a multi-billion dollar global partnership to enable developing and emerging economies to transition their energy economies to renewable electrification and do it in a way that creates a meaningful on-ramp for human opportunity for those who are poor and, and left behind. Those are the kinds of things that I think are all about future generations. They're all about doing the hard work now. I mean, I saw when we created Gavi, kind of, I was really responsible for it in the first five years. I got so much wrong, you know, and then other people came along and fixed those things and everything started to work. And, and I just think that's the spirit of it. We want to create, in this case, a global energy alliance. It won't have dramatic impact in the first six months or a year or 18 months, other than changing the mindset of what's possible and inspiring people by embracing some astonishing success stories. But, you know, 20 years from now, I hope people look back and say, gosh, three dozen developing countries were able to become fundamentally renewable energy-based economies and plugged into the global economy as a result because of what Rockefeller and its partners were able to do together back when no one was looking. So we carry that mission forward. It's not always front page news the way, you know, an Afghanistan evacuation is going to be, uh, but it is our core book of business. That's fantastic. Uh, if uh, if we can get there, if you can get there, if you can help uh, uh, us all get there, where three dozen uh, emerging market economies have gone to sustainable power uh, in, in a few decades, fantastic. Uh, Raj, uh, Peter Rockefeller uh, weighs in with the following. With your background in agriculture, what role is, Rock, is the Rockefeller Foundation playing in sustainable and regenerative farming practices in the U.S. and globally? Uh, well, thank you, Peter. It's, it's nice to hear from you. We, you know, we have uh, reinvigorated our food and agriculture program, which makes me so proud because, uh, frankly, the most inspiring person I've ever met in my life was a, was a uh, agricultural scientist named Dr. Norman Borlaug. And there was a time I went to visit him. Uh, I was at the Gates Foundation and my boss, a gentleman named Jeff Rakes, wanted to go say hi to Norm. And so I said, could we come visit? And we went to see him in his, you know, uh, his his. Uh, long-standing home in Texas, out in Dallas, and uh, he spent all day talking to us about what the Rockefeller Foundation did over the course of 50 years to invest in agricultural science, in agricultural scientists, and in the fight against hunger all around the world. Uh, and at the end of that visit, he said, "He said, hey, you guys want to see the medals? And I said, sure, you know, not knowing what he was referring to. And so he says, Jeannie, he has his daughter come down and she said, go to, can you go to the bank and get the medals? <laughs> and so she comes back with, a, I kid you not, a Kroger uh, brown bag, okay? Puts it on the coffee table and he says, go ahead, pull out the medals. And you know, you pull out the Nobel Peace Prize and you pull out the Congressional Medal of Honor or Freedom and the Presidential Medal of Honor. And very few people in history have been awarded all three of those. And one was Rockefeller's longest-serving employee, Dr. Borlaug, for his inventions that created the Green Revolution. So I was proud to reinvigorate that tradition. We have a great team of agricultural scientists and food systems experts now. We're working to improve nutrition access in the United States, and we are working to expand access to better nutrition around the world. 
it is uh, our work is grounded in the basic observation that modern food systems are making people sick. Uh, food is the number one cause of chronic disease and disability in industrial countries. It's the number one driver of healthcare expenses in the United States, and it will soon be the number one cause of disease and and morbidity in developing countries as they uh, as people get wealthier, thankfully, but then start eating much more poorly. Uh, in terms of nutrition because of the way we shape the global food economy. And so uh, regenerative agriculture is a big part of the solution. A lot of focus on nutrition uh, and child nutrition in particular. And, and we are uh, working both with industry and I'd say sometimes against industry to figure out how to create new models that, uh, that can help people be healthy um, and nutritious and have access to healthy, nutritious food. That's fantastic. Uh, I have to say that um, I think this sea change is coming in all societies like the United States. I mean, I look at my children are in their 20s and the difference in approach of that generation to everything food uh, and the way that it's rippling through society. So hopefully uh, in, in some of the emerging economies, as they become wealthier, maybe they can skip the step of uh, you know the kind of food and, and diet that uh, you know got, got into the you know, this period, this interregnum, hopefully in a society like the United States, it, it becomes just that and we don't export it to these other countries, but in fact, go right to what my kids are eating and your kids. And, and frankly, do it in a way that's affordable for everybody, which requires yeah. a massive rethinking of the cost of food and the true cost of food. And in fact, uh, the, the foundation published, I think, a landmark study called the, called the True Cost of Food uh, that, that gets exactly what you're talking about, Greg. It, it identifies how we... Uh, we subsidize things that are incredibly bad for you. We make more expensive things that would uh, that our kids demand now, thankfully, that that are part of a healthy, nutritious diet. And we need a public-private approach to reshaping global food systems to to get there. And for us, it starts with understanding the true cost of food. Uh, Raj, uh, we could go on and on. I want to make sure uh, uh, two more things here. One uh, that comes in from James Beal, who comes at this from the capital markets side actually leads our capital markets business. But he says something that a lot of the people listening will be interested in. Can you discuss the future of social impact bonds and their expansion to address more of the challenges that you and I have been talking about? Yeah, well, James, maybe you can help us with this. Uh, we, you know, we have a team that really thinks a lot about this. And fundamentally, if you think about it, you know, big long-term problems that require upfront investment in order to change the you know, the, the liability profile of the long term are amenable to these types of financial structures. And in my view, the first big social impact bond was the innovative, uh, was the one I talked about on immunizations. That was basically simply the observation that if we, if we could secure long-term commitments for global vaccination, issue debt, raise the money, and engage in proactive investments and contracts, with vaccine manufacturers, we could change the nature of the supply base of that industry. That's actually what caused Serum Institute of India, for example, to accelerate to become the world's largest uh, manufacturer of vaccines by volume and at the lowest cost, and which has dramatically enabled uh, some of what's now possible on COVID-19. That same concept has been applied to, you know, resilience programs in the UK and environmental programs in the US. I think there, I think we're just at the cusp of that that sector being a major part of the solution to big problems. I mean, to me, the biggest opportunity is also the one that's been least taken advantage of, and it is around green bonds and figuring out how you make 
investments today that change the long-term profile of profit and cost and, and loss, and you do that in a manner that you know is linked to the ability to deliver real outcomes against climate goals. And unfortunately, in my view, most green bonds today have been uh, a little bit more about marketing and a little bit more about maybe some pricing improvements and access to capital for big companies that, you know, uh, aren't, aren't maybe fully part of the solution. <laughs> Let me say it that way. Uh, but but these industries always start this way. And I think 20 years from now, uh, hopefully we're all living in a world where, you know, uh, green bonds, social impact bonds are just a much bigger share of capital markets and also a much bigger share of how people who are trying to solve problems from the nonprofit sector are looking at accessing capital in, in new and novel ways. It's great. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to volunteer Mr. Beal, who is uh, thoughtful on the topics to, to be part of it. Um, Raj, uh, uh, I, I had wanted to ask you this, uh, given the experience that you've had, which may be as international and global as uh, virtually anybody, public or private sector. What advice do you give young people today and how has that changed over time? Well, uh, you know, look, I, I for young people who want to be involved in this work, uh, I, the good news is I, I think you can do almost anything and then pivot to be involved. So, you know, we need people with capital markets experience as we were just talking about, you know, with James's question. Uh, we need folks who are scientists that can be involved in developing new energy storage solutions for, you know, stationary renewable projects in low income parts of the world. We need people who understand business, who can really build public private partnerships. And we need people with more traditional backgrounds who are, you know, committed to public health science or committed to public administration or willing to go into government and then work in philanthropy. So I think whatever it inspires you to be your best and most engaged is the path you should take. Uh, the second thing I'd say is it's really important to find opportunities to, to learn early. Uh, you know, and I got lucky to be honest, right? I We had lost a political campaign. I was kind of out of a job. I really didn't want to go back into academic medicine, but I sort of felt like I needed to. And along came this opportunity to work with Bill Gates, who frankly in 99, 2000, 2001, I mean, the whole mindset was what can we learn? We knew what we didn't know and we really wanted to learn, but we got to learn, you know, with the promise of, of real uh, capacity to act behind it. So, so all of a sudden the smartest people in the world were talking to us about how to solve some of the world's biggest problems. I would just say, if you can find a way to be at a place for a little while where you can just soak it in, you can just learn about how do you build new public-private partnerships? How do you uh, break down a problem like, you know, global immunization into, into you know, something quantitative and understandable and analytic? Um, how do you understand uh, the real incentives that people have in, in tough places uh, to survive and use those incentives as you would in any walk of business to, to make your ideas thrive. That opportunity to learn, I would just, if, I, if one thing that has changed for me, I used to say, you know, uh, just find some early experiences. I'd be more selective and I'd, I'd really say, forget about what you're gonna contribute. Look for where you have an opportunity to learn early on, because that learning is gonna pay huge, huge dividends for you in the future. I think that's fantastic advice, uh, which I'll be imparting to, to my three. Um, last uh, question, and uh, we can hit it briefly, but I did want to ask it. 
the Rockefeller Foundation is a is a approximately six billion dollar foundation today. That's put uh, over twenty two billion dollars to work uh, over the last one hundred and eight years, and I emphasize that because it's only those of us around the Rockefellers in the United States, at least, who are able to talk about one hundred and eight years of uh, of history. Um, the the Rockefeller name uh, as part of what what you've done, Raj. The the impact of the six and the twenty two is really you can add digits. Uh, can you just talk a little bit, and we'll close on uh, on this in incredible family and the name and and the role that it's played in um, uh, in allowing you to to do the things you're doing there as the leader. Yeah, I think this maybe Greg applies uh, very much to Rockefeller Capital Management as well. I think we carry we, we uh, in different ways. You and I get to be stewards of of uh, of a name that represents. Uh, something to almost everyone on the planet, and it, it represents uh, the concept of financial success in the work that we get to do. It represents um, the idea that every human being uh, it warrants real meaningful opportunity and upward mobility, and that we care and respect and value everyone, uh, no matter where they are and no matter who they are, and we believe that uh, science and capitalism and partnership and good governance uh, can come together to really give everybody that uh, opportunity to have dignity and hope. And that's just so powerful. You know, you can't build that. In the work I do, you just can't build that uh, quickly. It comes because we created public health, eradicated smallpox, invented a yellow fever vaccine and, and funded tens of thousands of scientists in in low-income parts of the world and they went on to create their own legacies it comes because you know we invested in helping uh, evacuate uh, often jewish scholars from europe uh, in the forefront of world war ii and saved uh, incredibly important uh, people's lives brought them to the united states and then they had uh, children and families, one of whom is Madeleine Albright, who told the story of how the Rockefeller Foundation uh, helped her father at a time of extraordinary need. And it, and it comes because we're willing to take the risk to look forward even now and say, can this tremendous energy transition the world is going to have to make be a vehicle for unlocking opportunity for those who are left behind? I mean, people in the world I work in believe the word that the phrase Rockefeller Foundation means we can be trusted to care about their future um, and have their interests at heart. That's been earned over more than a century of proving it the hard way. And uh, it, perhaps my only real mission is to make sure that I leave this place uh, with, with strength and robustness against that core value um, as we go forward. That was incredibly well said. And, and frankly, and we're coming at it from uh, from the private side of the equation and helping families with uh, with uh, investment and wealth planning and generational planning, but trusted to care about their future. Uh, we're trying to build a firm that takes this name and does exactly that. And if you're successful at that, you're differentiated uh, by definition, which is what uh, those uh, in the family and, and what uh, uh, those working with the Rockefeller name have done for, for so long. Uh, Raj, this was fantastic. It's a tour de force. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation 
It's a great sister organization and uh, great to have you as the leader. They're lucky. Uh, and uh, I know you'll continue to do great things there. Uh, we really appreciate you being here today. Uh, as always, uh, I will um, uh, close uh, uh, for our clients and colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller uh, with a quote. Uh, and I had uh, Rasha in mind uh, uh, with uh, with this quote, uh, which I think is applicable to the life that he is uh, continues to uh, live and lead. And it's Mandela, uh, not having known, by the way, that you met Mandela, uh, who said the following um, quote. There is no passion to be found in playing small, in settling for a life that is less than what you are capable of living. And that was Nelson Mandela. John D. Rockefeller would agree with those words. Raj, thank you uh, very much for being here again. Uh, and um, uh, thanks uh, again to all of our listeners, clients, and colleagues.